0: Hi, this is Tom. Our conversation with Max Boot marks a baker's dozen interviews in my return to public conversation. It's been so gratifying to dig in again with movers and shakers and you on the issues and ideas that are lighting up our world, sometimes in bright hope, sometimes in angry flames. For all your listening and your great feedback, thank you. You rock. Now it's time to take this project to the next level. We're going to close the tent flaps a little while we build out the next iteration, a proper podcast and more. A lot of you have asked for it. We are excited to bring it. In the meantime, I'd love to hear from you about what matters most to you now, about what you most need to hear, about what's most important, vital, necessary, energizing to you, and how I can best deliver. We've set up a short survey. You can find a link in the show notes. Your support and encouragement mean the world to us as we move to build out our next phase. Stay tuned. Now, to Max Boot. Little Max Boot came to the United States as an immigrant at age seven, fleeing the old Soviet Union with his family and falling in love with America. In time, he became big Max Boot, the bold conservative columnist in love with George Will and William F. Buckley and Ronald Reagan, with George W. Bush and the allure of the Iraq War. Now, Max Boot, conservatives conservative with his trademark fedora, has turned hard on the Donald Trump GOP. He says he just didn't see modern conservatism's roots in racism, ignorance, and isolationism. But he sees them now. He's out with a new book, The Corrosion of Conservatism. He's making Trump folks spitting mad. He's dividing liberals on whether to join arms with a one-time foe. And he says the current Republican Party has to be burned to the ground at the polls to have any chance of building a reasonable center-right party in America. Max Booth, thank you very much for being with us. It's great to have you here. Thank you for having me. Listen, can we can we go right to the end, or maybe even a little bit beyond the end, and then circle back and around? But you say at the end of all this that you're now convinced, I'm quoting you here, that the Republican Party must suffer repeated and devastating defeats beginning in November. You say it must pay a heavy price for its embrace of white nationalism and know-nothingism. You say, only if the GOP, as it is currently constituted, is burned to the ground, will there be any chance to build a reasonable center-right party out of the ashes. Max Boot, go to the end or beyond the end, why does it matter that this thrust is stopped, that this GOP, by your lights, is stopped or turned back, turned around?
1: Well, I think it's incredibly dangerous when you have one party in this country seeking and, and more, most recently acquiring political power, by pandering to the basis prejudice and bigotry. I mean, what the Republican Party is now doing in thrall of Donald Trump is really dividing our country along uh, ethnic and sectarian lines. That's fundamentally counter uh, to what America should be about, which is a nation united by a single creed contained in the Declaration of Independence, the pursuit of happiness and life, liberty, uh, and, uh, and freedom for all. Uh, And that's, you know, the the Trumpified Republican Party stands in opposition to that. It's become de facto a white nationalist party with a conservative fringe after having been a conservative party with a white nationalist fringe. And unfortunately, as long as the Republican Party sees uh, this kind of uh, bigotry and prejudice as a winning political formula, it will continue further down along that road, which is why, you know, I think it's so imperative for voters to to signal, no, we're not going to uh, reward this.
0: That's on the domestic side, and let's hold that picture as you paint it. What about on the international side, Uh, Trump conservatism, if you want to call it that, or the Trump GOP?
1: Well, what you see with with Donald Trump is that he is fundamentally opposed to the American-led world order constructed by the greatest generation out of the ashes of World War II. That world order was based on support for american allies support for free trade support for liberal democracy donald trump doesn't really believe in any of that he has repeatedly said that he thinks that our alliance system is a racket and a ripoff that our allies are taking advantage of us that any country that has a trade surplus with us is somehow uh, victimizing us that we shouldn't be paying to to station troops abroad he has criticized our allies in the most scathing terms possible he has picked feuds with individual leaders from Angela Merkel to Justin Trudeau, while at the same time uh, praising America's enemies and, and some of the worst dictators in the world in the most loathsome terms. I mean, he said that, uh, that uh, Vladimir Putin is strong. He said that uh, Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines is doing a great job on, on fighting drugs. Uh, and he said that he's in love with Kim Jong-un, who is one of the most repressive rulers in the world. Uh, so, this is not the kind of moral clarity I expected from the Republican Party uh, when I joined in the 1980s under Ronald Reagan, who very forthrightly called the Soviet Union an evil empire. I mean, imagine Donald Trump saying anything like that. In fact, he is uh, in flaw to, to Putin, who is the successor uh, to the evil empire in Moscow.
0: So, Max, play this tape forward. If the path would remain unchanged, if the trajectory would remain unchanged, many are pushing against that. You're pushing against it now. But Trump may well come back in 2020. Some say he could pull out a victory again. If the GOP, a white, as you say, a white nationalist ruling party, stays in power in the United States, I think it's hard for a lot of Americans to really visualize how this could unfold over time because we've been accustomed for so long to the. U.S. led world order you described, and to a certain kind of um, domestic tranquility at home, with all kinds of tensions. But if if we, the country goes on down this path, why are you ringing the alarm bells so loudly? Paint a picture of what you might foresee domestically and abroad.
1: Well, it's hard to predict, in part because Donald Trump is so erratic, uh, and you know he's he is never consistent. He is never coherent. Uh, he often surprises everybody, I think, including often himself, but what I see that's been happening just in the fewer than two years that he has been in power is that he has mounted an unprecedented assault on American institutions. He is assailing the rule of law in public in the way that Richard Nixon did in private. Uh, I mean, Trump fired the FBI director to stop the probe of the, uh, of, of Russia's intervention in our election. As he himself publicly admitted, he daily castigates the attorney general for not uh, squelching this politically inconvenient investigation. Uh, you know, He is doing his best to try to politicize the Justice Department, and so far uh, leaders like uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions and Rod Rosenstein have held the line against him, but it's very easy to imagine that before long they could be fired and Trump could wind up with, with cronies and yes-men who will do his bidding and will do serious damage uh, to the rule of law. I mean, Trump is also mounting a daily assault on on the very concept of truth. I mean, he's the guy who said, well, the truth isn't the truth, and basically telling his followers not to believe what they see or read. They should only believe what comes out of his mouth. Well, what comes out of his mouth is, on average, eight lies a day, according to the Washington Post. And we've come to accept that that's normal, along with you know his bullying, his belittling, his mockery of, of people weaker than himself, his conspiracy theorizing, you know his repeated uh, 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 his repeating constantly complete falsehoods long after they've been corrected. I mean we've come to accept all that as normal, but it, I think it's very corrosive to our democracy and I think the longer that it goes on, the more corrosive it becomes. you know I really see the country sh- changing before my eyes. I could have never imagined that we would have this Populist demagogue in the White House, but now that he's there, that's becoming the new norm. And, and you're quite right that he could easily win re-election in 2020, and we could see many more years of this. And I think, you know, I don't know where it ends up, but it's not going to be in a good place because, you know, I think he's dividing society, and he's disuniting us. He's undermining our democracy, and even if our democracy survives, as I think it likely will, I doubt that the American-led world order will survive because, you know, why would anybody in the world have any confidence? in the United States again in the future uh, when Donald Trump has turned the country, our country and himself into a literal laughingstock. I mean, in fact, he had the leaders at the UN laughing at him uh, when he spoke to them last month.
0: Yeah. Max, I want to come back to that and and try again. I mean, you're, you're very responsible in the way you lay out all the um, the dangers and the threats that we see right now. But I still feel that a lot of Americans don't visualize what the downside outcome of all this might be very clearly or imagine that there needn't be a downside. I mean, you can find Trump supporters aplenty who, who when he plays the edges or goes beyond them, they, you know they say, so what? We're rich, we're powerful, we can play the edges and win. I wish you would engage in a kind of... You know, Max Boot, uh, active forward imagination. What could happen here if we stay on this path? What could it? We know what's happened already. We know the risks that are there. But can you try and make vivid what this might mean at home if we stay on this path and what it might mean, what would it might it look like in the world abroad?
1: Well, I think this will mean greater uh, division, disunity, And extremism at home. I think one of the consequences of Donald Trump is that while he's driving the Republican Party further to the right, uh, he's producing a countervailing reaction with many trying to drive the Democratic Party further to the left, which is leaving a lot of centrist voters like me politically disenfranchised. And I think the more that we become polarized, and we are very polarized already and becoming more so all the time between far left and far right, the harder it becomes to address our, all of our very real problems, whether it's crumbling infrastructure or heavy federal debt, which Donald Trump is piling up. So all these issues will will, will pile up uh, and make it harder to resolve and, and you know, I, I think undermine our, our greatness and our standing world from within. And I, I think the, the greatest effect might well be uh, on the American the international order, which was already waning before Trump came to office. We've seen the rise of China and Russia and other threatening states. But I think Donald Trump is accelerating that decline with his tendency to to trash American allies and to praise America's enemies. I think he is causing a fatal loss of confidence in the United States. I mean, uh, we had a recent Pew poll that showed only 39% of Canadians have a favorable view of the United States, that's Canadians. 32% of Mexicans, 30% of Germans. He is alienating our closest allies. And, you know, why would they ever trust the United States ever again? So I think what he is doing is he is accelerating the collapse of the American-led world order and ushering in something new, and we don't know exactly what that will be. It could be a Chinese-led world order, or I think more likely it's going to be a multipolar system of the kind we had pre-1914 with multiple competing power centers and no state powerful enough like the United States to stand up for freedom and democracy and free trade, and all those other principles the United States has championed since 1945, I think the result of that will be a world where aggressors uh, have free sway. I mean, you're already seeing that, that kind of world ushered into being where one of our closest allies, Saudi Arabia, feels able apparently to murder a, an American resident who wrote for an American newspaper. Jamal Khashoggi in in the consulate. Washington Post, yeah. In, Jamal Khashoggi the Washington Post apparently felt free to murder him, from what we can tell, in its consulate in Istanbul where, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin feels free to carry out war crimes in Syria, Rodrigo Turkey feels free to send out death squads into the streets of the Philippines, and on and on and on. I mean, this is not all America's doing, but there's certainly a sense that we have stepped back from moral leadership, and the more that we do that, I think the more it empowers the aggressors and rogue states and human rights violators. And so I think, you know, you will see the world start to be transformed in ways uh, that are very inimical to uh, America's interests, as we've understood them, since
0: 1945. The pre-1914 order that you described, the multipolar uh, order. Exactly, where you have competing competing power centers, where
1: you have arms races. I mean, if we pull back in East Asia, for example, as, as Trump may very well do, you could see uh, Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan all going nuclear to defend themselves because if, if they no longer trust the United States to defend them, and then they could have a, 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 a nuclear arms race with China. I mean, that is something that recalls the pre-1914 naval arms race between Germany and Britain, which helped to lead to World War I. So those are the kind of scenarios that I am very, very concerned about.
0: Um, does, it's been described as a kind of return to the jungle uh, globally. Historically, exactly. that has meant, again and again and again, that has meant war. Uh, exactly. is, is that the risk here?
1: Right. That is the risk. I mean, I think we have taken for granted this Pax Americana that we created after 1945. We have taken for granted that we live in a fairly secure world without major power conflict, with freedom uh, and democracy and free trade spreading. We've been the biggest beneficiaries of that world order uh, because it's allowed us to become very rich and, and relatively safe. Uh, And we just assume that this is kind of the natural order of things, and it isn't. This was really the product of the very farsighted decisions made by the greatest generation uh, to commit American forces in Europe and Asia, to stand watch on the ramparts of freedom, and to work with our allies and and to uh, take a more altruistic approach to world affairs so that we weren't trying to screw other countries out of every single advantage we could screw out of them. But instead, we were working generously to help them. In the expectation that a rising tide lifts all boats, and that is very much not Donald Trump's view. His view is America first, you know, Britain first, China first, Russia first. In a world in which countries don't cooperate and view only their own self-interest in a very narrow fashion, that becomes a very dangerous world. That is the world that led to World War One.
0: Donald Trump has been making the case again and again and again all through the campaign and in, out of the White House that that order has meant the United States being screwed under the kind of polite minuet of the yeah, you know right, world order. Right. right.
1: What he says doesn't make a lick of sense because on the one hand, you're right, he talks about how we're getting screwed all the time or the piggy bank that's getting robbed, our allies, our free voters who are taking advantage of us. You know, we're not getting paid enough to station our troops abroad. It's a racket. It's a ripoff, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, and often in the very next breath, he says, we have the greatest economy ever, it's the strongest it's ever been Unemployment is the lowest it's ever been, we're getting rich, it's wonderful, we're winning all the time. It's an incoherent message because, you know, if we have the greatest economy ever, and by many measures we do have the greatest economy ever, then why would he say that we're getting ripped off, and what's the cost of, quote-unquote, getting ripped off? In fact, I think there's a connection between the fact that we guarantee this a liberal American and world order, and the fact that we are as wealthy as we are, there's a close connection between the two of them, which he doesn't understand.
0: If there's a logic in the Trump thinking, it seems to be that uh, Trump thinking, I will push this just as far as I can push it, and if push comes to shove, if it does get fiery or even goes to war, hey, we win then also. The United States wins then also.
1: Well, that may be, although I think that Trump is actually very wary of, of actual war. I mean, remember, he is somebody who cited bone spurs to avoid the Vietnam draft. It's
0: quite a different so, thing, not want to go yeah. in the rice paddies of Vietnam and fight oneself when one is a rich kid with not a callus no, on no, his hands.
1: No, 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 of course. I mean, he is, he, you could, I mean, he, he certainly issues blood curdling rhetoric from the safety of his podium protected by the Secret Service and then swaggers and talks about how he would knock people out and, and hit them and beat them up and so forth. Yeah. When, you know, he would never do that if he, didn't, if he wasn't protected by, by his well-armed bodyguards. But I, I think uh, there is nevertheless a psychological truth here, which is that, you know, Trump is a bully, but like a lot of bullies, there's also a streak of cowardice. And, and he, I think he actually shies away uh, from real conflict. And you see this in the fact that he is scathing in attacking the defenseless, you know, people like Christine Blasey Ford, but he is obsequious in dealing with strong dictators like Xi Jinping or Vladimir Putin or, or, or Kim Jong-un. Uh, he, he, I, I suspect that he sees in them and admires in them a the strength that he's not sure that he himself possesses, and I think he is, I mean, you know, he's, he's got this kind of swaggering rhetorical style but he's also a quasi-isolationist who is, I think, very reluctant uh, to actually go to war. So that doesn't mean we wouldn't go to war because we could easily blunder into a conflict. You know, But I don't think that he would have actually, for example, launched a preemptive strike on North Korea if he, as he threatened to do last year.
0: Uh, there's been speculation, though, especially as he's talked 60 Minutes just recently about the, the Defense Secretary Mattis as sort of a Democrat that he might get rid of him, and that that might be part, especially with John Bolton in the White House, of a, of an urge toward war with Iran. What do you think?
1: Well, I think that is a real risk. I mean, especially if Iran does something that gives Trump an excuse, like you know, sponsoring an act of terrorism perhaps against the United States, uh, but. You know, I think what you've seen in the case of Syria is that where he could have done more to contest uh, Iran and Iranian interests, he settled for a couple of long-range, low-risk cruise missile strikes against Bashar Assad after Assad used chemical weapons. So even if we were to blunder into a conflict with Iran, I suspect that Trump would probably limit himself uh, to some airstrikes. I don't see him ordering an American invasion of Iran, for example.
0: Max Boot, can we bring it home I have never in my life heard more people worry aloud about the possibility, and it's, it's, may we pray we're far from it, may we pray it never happens, but people talk about the possibility of a new civil war in this country, and some people seem to even lust for it, some on the right in particular. Do you see a scenario in which that could come to pass, or is that just a fever dream, a nightmare?
1: I think it's a nightmare, but occasionally nightmares do come to pass. I mean, we certainly saw blood in the streets in the nineteen sixties, and I think this is the most divided America has been since the Vietnam era. So it's certainly not outside the realm of possibility. Uh, that what would, would it see, look like if it came? Uh, what's that?
0: What would it look like if it came?
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, that's again, very, I, you know, to to paraphrase Ogier Bara, I'm not very good about making predictions, especially about the future. I mean, who knows? But, I mean, we, we've we certainly seen violence by right-wing extremists like the neo-Nazis in Charlottesville. We've seen, you know, a lower level of violence by a few Antifa activists on the left. Um, you certainly see Donald Trump ramping up the rhetorical violence against Democrats, you know, accusing them of being traitors who want to open the borders to rapists and murderers and who want to turn America into another Venezuela, i.e., a bankrupt socialist dictatorship. And then you see, you know, I don't think anybody in the Democratic Party has done anything remotely as bad, but I mean, you do see kind of this urge to hit back with, you know, Hillary Clinton saying, we can't afford civility right now, with Eric Holder saying, you know, when they go low, we've got to kick them. Uh, And, you know, uh, with progressive activists chasing you know, Ted Cruz and a few others out of restaurants. Again, there's not a moral equivalence here. There's not a left wing mob in America. I mean, there's not even a, a
0: street equivalence, right? You got Proud Boys beating right. people up in the streets of New York in front of New York police. That that's that's a with a sword in the hand of the leader. That that's a different level.
1: No, it's a different level. I don't want to engage in moral equivalence, yeah. but you know, I think that there is a sense in which uh, the the excesses of the right are driving uh, some on the left to drop uh, civility and to try to, uh, you know, to try to match the ugliness of the right. And I think that would be a mistake because that is the kind of phenomenon that can trigger, you know, uh, actual bloodshed, which, I, which is something that I hope doesn't happen. I think the way for the left to resist successfully is to go out there and register voters and mobilize at election time and, you know, elect Democrats, which is something that needs to happen uh, to, to have some checks and balances in our system. I don't, but there is a tendency, I think, some on the left to say, well, you know, we can't fight Trump uh, by being too elevated in our tactics. We have to get in the gutter with him. And I think that would backfire.
0: Max, you know, in the 1960s, when things broke out into real violence, it was very often protesters or in some cases rioters against police. That's a, that's a, somehow structurally different than what people might think of as a civil war. People look around at how heavily armed this country is, on who tends to have those arms, and wonder that if if a, a new conflict, call it a civil war, if you will, could take a different, quite a different form than the 1960s.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, civil war is probably a little bit overblown as a term. I mean, we're not going to see the actual civil war with, you know, hundreds of thousands of troops Mobilized in, in different states, but you know, I think you could certainly see an in, uh, an increase in kind of low-level political violence, terrorism, and you know, shootings and that kind of thing, of which you already see a little bit, often carried out by people who seem to be deranged. You know, like that uh, individual who who shot up the congressional uh, baseball game, or the person who attacked the newspaper in Annapolis, seemingly without any. Political motivation. But I mean, you see some of these kinds of low-level incidents occurring already, and it's not hard to imagine that in a country that's this heavily armed with so many people, you know, on poison on the life edge already with passions running so high that you could see an explosion of, of more incidents of that kind.
0: Why didn't you see this trend earlier on? I mean, you write that you say upon closer examination in the book, uh, you write, it's obvious that the whole history of modern conservatism is permeated with racism, extremism, conspiracy-mongering, ignorance, isolationism, and know-nothingism. That's quite a list. Why didn't someone like you see that?
1: Well, because I was deep in the bubble, and you know, ours is a very tribalistic society. Uh, People on the left tend not to see the faults of the left, and people on the right tend not to see the faults of the right, and I was very much on the right. I mean, I was somebody, you know, who's been identified as the conservative movement ever since I was a conservative columnist at the University of California at Berkeley in the early 1990s. I worked at the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I wrote for commentary in the Weekly Standard. I served as an advisor to three Republican presidential candidates. So I really drank the Kool-Aid. And, you know, I, I tended to, you know, focus on my own area, which was national security, and not worry too much about what was going on to the left or right of me, you know, even if I didn't necessarily agree with everything that was going on, I felt like, well, you know, I've got to be part of this coalition, and so that's, you know, that's the price of, of of being part of a movement, having allies, and you know, I was generally sympathetic to the conservative movement, but then, you know, the election of Donald Trump really caused me to reassess, because it made me realize, wait a second, this this isn't leading where I thought it was leading. I mean, I thought it was going to lead to the election of somebody like John McCain, or Mitt Romney, which I would have been very comfortable with, I still would be very comfortable with. Uh, but instead, it led to the election of Donald Trump, and it made me realize and we re- I had to reassess and say, well, how did we get to Trump? And and now I looked back at, at all these developments uh, that you know I had not paid much attention to, like the rise of Fox News and Sarah Palin and the Tea Party. I wasn't exactly a supporter of any of those, but I didn't realize just how corrosive and destructive they actually were, and how. They were driving the right into into this uh, extremism that gave rise to Donald Trump. And, and, you know, his election was really the spur that made me break out of my tribal uh, enclave and, and really think for myself uh, about all we, we think these issues, even at the cost of, you know, suffering abuse and ostracism uh, from the right. And by the way, I would add for many on the left as well who, you know, who, who basically say that I'm irredeemable and, and, and cannot possibly atone for uh, my sins of having been a conservative.
0: I mean, you, you have been widely celebrated um, by mainstream and or uh, liberal uh, press, I'd say, in this book, or certainly widely heard and, and uh, listened to. But it's true, you've got some pretty stiff critics um on the, the the left as well, Peter Moss writing in The Intercept, especially for your very active promotion of the Iraq War and more, he says that you've helped create so much havoc, been so wrong, so completely, that it would be the definition of insanity to treat his, yours Max Boot's, ideas as fodder for anything other than the shredder. What do you say to those on the left who, who say, no, thanks, we, we, you know, given this track record, even if you've had a conversion experience of some kind, you we don't want you in our company.
1: Well, I mean, that's the kind of uh, ideological purity and, uh, and extremism that will consign the left to being a minority movement while Trump takes over the country. That's that's where that's leading. I mean, if you can't, if the left rejects uh, people who, who reject Trump, uh, then they're never going to prevail. I mean, they're going to choose ideological purity. Uh, uh, over, over, you know, creating a winning coalition. And I've been very happy to see that a lot of of, of very good liberals are, in fact, uh, very supportive of of me uh, because they understand that, uh, you know, you're you're not going to uh, have, you're not going to stop Trumpism uh, if you refuse to accept uh, any any conservatives in your ranks.
0: What about among conservatives themselves, Ross Douthat, conservative with the New York Times writing over the weekend about you, Jennifer Rubin, Evan McMullen, Tom Nichols at the Navy War College, saying these aren't really relevant, quote unquote, conservatives anymore. They, they're, they've they missed a turn. Uh, John McCain was not elected. Your kind of conservatism isn't, I guess he's suggesting, isn't really conservative by some new definition or isn't the future of conservatism. What do you say to that, Max?
1: Right, and Ross, Ross, who thought is even leading me out of the conservative movement in the past, basically suggesting I was some kind of democratic imperialist yes. uh, intruder in that I wasn't a true conservative. Well, you know, I was actually espousing conservative ideas when I think he was in elementary school. So I don't, you know, I don't quite understand where he's coming from. He's somebody who's been critical of Donald Trump, but now says that the only way you can be a real conservative is basically to accept Trump's populist turn and try to give it intellectual coherence and ballast. And I just fundamentally reject that. I mean, he may be right that uh, Trumpism is where the conservative movement is at, but for me, that's an argument for rejecting the conservative movement. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's still somewhat painful to me because I did identify for a long time with conservatism, and, and I'm, I'm happy not to identify uh, that way if, if, if Trumpism now equals conservatism. But uh, I, that's certainly not a turn not a that, that I'm willing to accept or applaud.
0: How does this country regain uh, a healthy center-right, Max?
1: I think the only way that happens is if the Republican Party suffers repeated and devastating defeats, because if they continue to win with this message of division and and bigotry, you're going to see a lot more of that in the future. The only way I think you can get back to having a reasonable center-right party, which we desperately need, is if Republican politicians who are a very cynical lot understand that they're not going to be successful by following Donald Trump. So I think the road to recovery from Trumpism begins in November by voting for the Democratic Party, which is something I never did before Donald Trump came along. And I always voted Republican. Now I can't imagine voting Republican because we need checks and balances and, and we need to to stop the Republican Party's uh, descent into this nationalist populism.
0: I don't get how so many politicians—if you're right, if Trumpism is this stew of racism, extremism, conspiracy-mongering, ignorance, know-nothingism, how can so many Republican politicians embrace that? Is it just for a win? What does a win mean, if that's what the, the, the grounds for the win are?
1: That's a great question, and I keep asking myself, you know, what does it profit them to win the Supreme Court or Congress? at the cost of losing their souls. But, you know, that is not a consideration that very many politicians have. All they seem to care about is winning re-election, and especially for Republicans winning re-election in Republican primaries, where a single tweet from Donald Trump can send them down to defeat, as happened with Congressman Mark Sanford in South Carolina. So that's what all these Republicans are terrified of. And so, you know, in lieu of principles, they have poll numbers. And Donald Trump's poll numbers are not very good with the population at large, but he's got 89% support among the Republicans, and as long as that's true, they're going to be vanishingly few Republican politicians who are brave enough to take him on.
0: What is at the very heart of that? Is it racism? Is it race fear? Is it fear of a of the, the diverse, ethnically and racially diverse country that is emerging so powerfully in the United States now?
1: I think it's it's various phenomena at play. Among Republicans, I think it's mainly just cynicism and self-preservation, because privately a lot of folks in Washington on the Republican side know how dangerous and unqualified Donald Trump is. They're just afraid to say so in public. It's a different matter when it comes to the grassroots, where Donald Trump has a real base of support, uh, which loves him not not despite his racism and xenophobia and misogyny and cruelty, but because of it. I mean, those are the very things that attract a distributing large number of Republican voters, and that's something that shocked me. Uh, but that's you know, when I realized that that, that is but that is the reality. And so, you know, he's got this very rabid fan base out uh, in the heartland, and he's got these cynical self-serving opportunists in Washington who are willing to give him and his fans whatever they want, if in, if in return they, they achieve a measure of 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 power for themselves.
0: How do you explain that, that if you're right again, that part of the populace that, if you're right, is devoted or thrilled by racism, cruelty, misogyny, putting a president in office, how do you explain the existence of that? That, that, That's not the self-image of an awful lot of Americans.
1: Well, obviously those sentiments are much more widespread than I previously realized. I mean, there's a long history of that. I mean sure. remember that it was only about fifty years ago that, that the southern states had their own form of apartheid. I mean it's it's within living memory, right? Yep. And I you know, I, I think we've made real progress since then. and I think we've overcome some of our uh, dark, you know, and, and horrible history of racism, but we just have not made as much progress as I had imagined. And, you know, in 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 this existing stew of of, of bigotry against you know, African Americans. You now have bigotry against Latino Americans. Uh, you have bigotry against Muslims. So there are these new outgroups that are now uh, motivating this this resurgence of of, of prejudice that, that Donald Trump is catering
0: to. If you could go back, Max, to the seven-year-old Max coming to this country as a as an immigrant from the then Soviet Union, kind of fleeing the Soviet Union, I guess. What, to the extent that you could speak of such deep and difficult things to a seven-year-old, what, what insight would you want to give him about the United States? How might you alert him to some of what you've awakened to over these years?
1: You know, to, to little me
0: uh, would be, you know,
1: understanding this is a wonderful country with, with, with many great things, but there is also an ugliness an and a darkness uh, that has to be battled against every day. And that's something that I tend to forget because, you know, I became so enamored of America. This really became my creed, Americanism. And I, I was, you know, convinced it was the greatest country in the world. It took me in and my family in and gave us opportunities we would not have had in any other country in the world. I think this country has done more for the advance of, of human freedom and dignity than any other country in the last century. Um, you know, so I think it's a, I still think it's a great, great place, but, I, you know, I think I let my enthusiasm probably run away with me uh, when I was young. Uh, and, you know, I tended to take a somewhat Pollyanna-Shoe American to discount the prevalence of, you know, racism or, or, or sexism or xenophobia, all these problems that people on the more liberal side of the spectrum have always pointed to, and I thought they were really maligning America, and in particular maligning the Republican Party when they said the Republican Party, you know, was, was fundamentally racist and, and, and had all these other problems. I always denied that. I thought it was a horrible libel. And I still think that, you know, there's lots of fine, upstanding Republicans and conservatives who are not tainted by racism, but unfortunately, I think the, the problem is, is much more greater than I had realized when I was young. And, and, you know, I wish I had been a little bit more alive to, to the dark side of conservatism as well as its uh, uplifting nature.
0: You say it may take decades to work our way out of this, the undoing, undoing the work of decades. Well, it's been decades in the making, but it may take a long time to work out of it. What does that look like? You say it has to begin with repeated and devastating defeats for the GOP. The GOP is currently constituted and needs to be burned to the ground, you say, for a chance to bring back a reasonable center-right party out of the ashes. What's the siren song that would pull the necessary quadrant of voters to I, I, into that mission, Max?
1: Well, that's that's a great question, to which I don't have a good answer. I mean, as, you're right, as long as there is a constituency for bigotry and extremism, there will be people to cater to it, but I would hope that the Republican Party would certainly not cater to it as obviously and as egregiously as, as Donald Trump does today. I mean, we've seen redefinitions of parties that have occurred over the years i mean the last big one occurred in the 1960s where you know up until 1964 the republican party was the party of civil rights it had a large african-american constituency it tended to be much more liberal there were many liberal republicans like nelson rockefeller and with barry goldwater's defeat defeat of goldwater of nelson rockefeller in 1964 that was really a turning point where the republican Mm -hmm. party Went from being the party of civil rights to being the party of Southern whites, uh, and the liberal Republicans like Rockefeller and Jacob Javits and uh, uh, Bob Packwood and many others were driven out of the ranks. Well, I mean that kind of fundamental redefinition happened once. It's it's not outside the general possibility there could be another redefinition that would take the Republican Party towards being a more Eisenhower-esque party, at least, you know, that's my dream. I don't think it's likely to happen anytime soon, but you know, it's 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 not completely out of the realm of possibility.
0: High stakes, tough time. Max Boot's new book is The Corrosion of Conservatism. Max, good luck. It's always good talking with you. Thank you very much for being with us.
1: Thank you for having me on.